As Kevin said, my name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors and elders here. And uh, we're also going through the book of James. If you are new with us and would like a scripture journal, just raise your hand and one of these fine human beings with scripture journals in their hands will come and hand you one so you can take notes and uh, join us uh, if you would like to. Anybody want a scripture journal? Anybody? Anybody? All right. Good deal. I guess you guys are off the hook. All right, James chapter 2. Today, uh, we, uh, the half-brother of Jesus is going to tell us exactly uh, what he wants the Christians he is writing to, to hear and to do. And he does this, like Kevin said last week, so that they will not only be hearers of the word, but doers as well. And in today's opening verse of chapter 2, we see that James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So, as Simon Sinek recommends in his best-selling book, Start With Why, that's exactly what we are going to do this morning. Why does James tell the believers to whom he is writing to show no partiality? Well, if you were paying attention when Kevin just read the passage for us this morning, you've already seen the answer to this question. Because he tells them they are not to show partiality because it is a transgression of God's royal law. Which then should lead us to ask another why question is why is partiality a transgression of the royal law? Like why is it when we show partiality toward other human beings, why does God consider that to be a sin? And it's because it is contrary to the nature of God. And anytime we try to communicate uh, to someone why something is a sin, why it's considered wrong, why it's a transgression of the law of God, and why it's an offense to God Himself, we must begin with the nature, the character, and the attributes of God. Now, if I were to ask you in a, in a conversational setting, hey, t tell me what you think God is like. Tell me what you think uh, God is like in His nature, in His character, in His attributes. Most assuredly, you would get to some of the really big subjects, some of the really big topics, some of the really big character attributes of God. You would probably talk about God's holiness. You would talk about His justice. You would talk about His wisdom. You might even respond by talking about His omnipotence, meaning he, He's all-powerful, His omniscience, that He's all-knowing, or His omnipresence, that God is everywhere throughout the entire cosmos. You might think of his eternality, that God has no beginning or no end. You might think of his sovereignty, that he is in complete control of the cosmos. And most assuredly, you would make it to his love, to his mercy, and to his grace. But would you ever in a million years consider the fact that God is wholly and completely impartial toward human beings? God is in his impartiality, this is an attribute of his that, that we don't talk about very often. But yet, as I was studying this passage, I was really surprised at how many times this comes up over and over and over throughout the entire canon of the Bible. And in this way, God being impartial, it, it really means he's totally unlike us. Because if you think about us as people and the world that we live in today, we are a very partial 
people, right? We have everyone divided into labels and categories. And in our own minds, we have different stratifications of where everyone fits inside of those labels and categories, right? We, uh, we, we, we base these categories on people's looks. We base it on their wardrobe. We base it on the kind of car they drive, the house they live in, their GPA, whether they are in a fraternity or a sorority, what degree they are pursuing. We might consider their profession and whether they're white collar or whether they're blue collar, whether they are company or union, whether they are an employee, management, or an owner. We might be partial toward people's race, toward people's gender, and toward people's political views, right? But though we may be partial towards people in a litany of areas, God himself is not partial toward people in any way. Since we are not really familiar with this subject, since it's something we don't talk about a whole lot, I want to establish a baseline for us this morning so that you really understand what James is getting at and I think what God wants for us this morning. And so we're going to look at a few verses just to set this baseline so that you can see it throughout Scripture how God speaks of this subject of partiality. Look at Deuteronomy 10.17 up on the screen. Oh, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles 19.7. Now then... Let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. Look at Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. This is an often repeated statement in scripture that God is not partial and God cannot be bribed. This must have been a really big issue for people in throughout the entire Bible, right? That God repeats to them, you cannot bribe me into doing what you want. You cannot sway me into doing what you want. You cannot offer me certain sacrifices. You cannot offer me any amount of money and think that you are going to sway me. Now, in what context is God speaking this to his people? It is in the matter of justice. We need to understand that when it comes to the subject of justice, God's standard is to be just, and God will render justice to individuals, and you cannot bribe him to be unjust in any way, shape, or form. But I think it's very interesting here in Deuteronomy 10, 17, where Moses is describing God, and he's saying, look, this is the God of gods. This is the King of kings. This is the Lord of lords. He is the great. He is the mighty. He is the awesome. And tying that together, he ties it directly to the fact that God is not partial. So I think this is a massive part of God's character, one that we often overlook and I don't think talk about enough in the church. But look at what it says in Malachi 2.9, because now you're going to see how God feels when his children are impartial. He says in Malachi 2.9, I also made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways, but have been partial. God's saying, I judged you as a people because of your partiality, because you had a respect to persons. And if you look at this in the, in the grander context of Scripture, this is God's very last words 
to the nation of Israel before he goes silent for 400 years. And so one of the last statements he makes to them saying that I am going to sin, I mean, I'm getting ready to go silent for 400 years, and I want you to know this is due in large part to the fact that you have been impartial in your dealing with people. God issues this great condemnation to his children who are partial. But we see this subject is not only addressed and discussed in the Old Testament. Peter, taking everything that he knew of the Old Testament, taking what he knew and what he saw in the life of Jesus, he says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. So throughout Scripture, we see this call, this reminder that God himself is impartial, and that we are also to be reminded that God will judge us impartially because He is holy. And the standard for us as His children is to be holy because God Himself is holy. Our Father is holy. And so we strive to be holy by being impartial. So now that we've kind of established this baseline of why we should be impartial, let, let me actually define what I am meaning when I use this word partial uh, throughout today's message. And you're going to hear kind of three terms used uh, synonymously. Partiality, being a respecter of persons, or in more common vernacular, uh, that of favoritism. Okay, these are three interchangeable words. If you're reading scripture, you will almost always see uh, a respecter of persons or partial or impartiality. That's how it's used. In our modern language, we use the word favoritism. And so the de definition I found is this, preferential attitude and treatment of a person or a group over another having equal claims and rights. Once again, preferential attitude and treatment of a person or a group over another having equal claims and rights. In other words, unjustified partiality is treating one person better than another person because for some reason or other you prefer them when there is no inherent, no intrinsic, and no needful reason for such treatment. So since we are here in church, and this is in the context of being written to the church, uh, let me give you what, an example of what it looks like to be impartial. So I, I'm one of the pastors and one of the elders here, along with Kevin Anderson and Theo Lightborn and Stephen Cruz. And so every once in a while, there are there are times when people come to us and they have a dispute that they need help resolving. And so our job as elders in the church is to listen uh, to one side and then to listen to the other. And at the end of the day, when we come to make a decision, the standard by which we make decisions is based on what the Word of God says in this decision, on what is right and what is wrong. 
we are not supposed to make our decisions based on whether this person is a member or whether they're not a member, whether this person serves in the church, whether they're on the worship team or not on the worship team, whether they give a little bit of money or whether they give a lot of money. It is not supposed to be based on any of those things whatsoever. We are to render judgment in an impartial way, strictly and solely based upon what the Word of God says. And we strive to do that to the best of our abilities. But all this talk about partiality may, may at some point lead you kind of ask the question, well, is it ever okay to be partial towards one person in any way, shape, or form? And I would say, yes, there is. There, there are times that we actually see in, in Scripture that we are commanded to be partial towards certain parties in our lives. So me, I'm a married man. And I am to be partial towards my wife. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, the word tells me that I am to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I am so thankful that I don't have to love the rest of you in that way, okay? Because that is a hard enough and a high enough calling to even attempt to try to do that with one human being, much less everyone that I come in contact to. But the greater understanding in context is, is that I am to be partial towards my wife in the time and in the affection that I give towards her. There is a special relationship that God has ordained that I am to be partial toward her um, in my interactions with her. But if my wife was ever one of those parties who got into a dispute with someone else in the church, then when it came to rendering a decision that, that we were trying to decide who was right or who, who was wrong, where justice was at stake, we would not be allowed, I would not be allowed to say, well, she's my wife, so she gets the benefit of the doubt. The elders would not be able to say, well, she's an elder's wife, so of course we're going to side with her because she gets that claim because of her status within the church. We are not allowed to be impartial in that way. So, so though there may be partiality in certain relationships between husband and wife, between parent and child, when it comes to rendering justice, when it comes to doing right, there is no impartiality with God. And as His children, we are to be impartial as well. So having laid this groundwork for um, the passage, let's go ahead and jump into today's passage and let's look at James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, this is a passage where it is just super easy to make an application. And having preached James in a uh, in, at a previous time in my life, the whole book, this is one thing I appreciate about the book of James. You can, it's easy to make application, right? So we can just imagine, you know, we are here at the University of Florida, 
And if you, we can just imagine if one of the favorite sons of the University of Florida came walking through that door, right? If Tim, Tim Tebow came walking through the back door this morning, right? Danny Werfel, Steve Spurrier, Emmett Smith. You can take even maybe your favorite tech entrepreneur, your favorite movie star, your, your favorite singer, the person that if they walked in, you would just gush over. You would be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're here. You would just lose your mind over. You would squeal like a little girl, right? I mean, that person, if they walked in the door, you know who they are in your mind, would you be really prone to show them preferential treatment? Would you be really prone to ask, hey, you can come sit beside me, right? Hey, I got a seat right beside me. I got the best seat in the house. You come on. We will make you feel welcome and we will make you feel comfortable. Is there anything you need? I will get you water. I will get you coffee. I'll get you a snack. I'll even go run to Burger King and get you a hamburger if you'd like one. Is there anything I can do for you this morning that would make you welcome and stay here at Aletheia Church all the better? Do you have that person in mind? Do you have a person like that? We all do, right? There's someone we would just fawn over and gush over. And this is what was taking place in the New Testament, the New Testament church. There were people who were being treated special simply because they had money, simply because they were, had a lot of gold rings on their hand. But what about on the other side of this? What if somebody came walking in the door of Aletheia Church this morning whom you could smell from 10 feet away? And I don't mean little old lady perfume smell from 10 feet away, right? I mean like hadn't taken a bath in six months to a year smell from 10 feet away. Would you be just as prone to welcome them to sit next to you and to have this seat right next to you? Would you be just as willing to get them coffee or a donut, or go get a hamburger for them if you saw that they were in need. And if you wouldn't, and let's just be honest, we probably wouldn't. The Bible says this is an unjustified preferential treatment. And it's a sin against God. But I mean, I, I, I want you to see, because I mean, James uses really strong language here in verse 4 when, when we do this. Look at what he says. He says, when you do this, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, now I, I don't know what you usually tie the word evil to. You know, for me, evil is reserved to a special category of people, right? Like dictators who wipe out millions of people, like serial rapists, serial killers, like really bad, awful people. But I don't usually attach the word evil to preferential treatment towards someone who I would really be impressed by and someone who I might be repelled by because of the way they smell. But that's actually, that's actually what James says to us. That when we do that, we have become judges with evil thoughts. And so I, I pray this wakes uh, up something in us to say, this is a really big deal to God. Because as I've been looking at this passage over the last few weeks, it's like, man, I really do this 
all the time. Like, this is a really big problem in my life, just stratifying people into different categories and treating people differently just based off the category that I have in my mind. And this is not an easy thing to deal with. I mean, this is something that is really hard, especially when we live in a world where everyone is trying to put us into boxes and categories, and we view one another based on those boxes and categories and how we feel about them based on those boxes and categories. So the, the, the first thing that we must do as Christians, you know, I teach my, 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 my children this all the time, that when you sin against someone, it's acknowledge, acknowledge your sin, confess your sin, and repent of your sin, right? So the first step is acknowledging that this is a sin in our lives. And so that's the first challenge being issued to us today. But though we have this... Um, this problem where we can judge people and show favoritism because of people's looks, their clothes, their profession, their possessions, their lifestyle, their education, their money, their position, their fame. Though we do this, God calls us as the children of God to live a different way and to not judge people in such a way, to not show preferential treatment toward people just because what they have or what they don't have. So look at me with James chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, where he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Let, let me do my, I do my best to explain um, what, what, what's going on here. Throughout the centuries, people have given special treatment to people with money. Right? And this should not be a surprise to us. The Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. So it should not be surprised that when money comes into play and we as human beings see someone flash money toward us or we see that being nice or preferential toward someone might increase uh, the financial amount that we have in our bank account, that we are prone to give special or partial treatment toward those who have money. But I think there's also something else that I think would help play into this as well, because James is writing primarily to a Jewish background church, and we see that in the very first part of James 1, because he's writing to those who are in the dispersion, which is a very Jewish term. I, I, I think there's something going on here that I can illustrate through the story of the rich young ruler out of the book of Mark in chapter 10. My, my children and I were going through that this week in our portion of of the New Testament. And if you're, if you're familiar with that story, you, you know how it goes, that this rich young man, he walks up to Jesus and he says, uh, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks to the young man and he responds to him by quoting the back half of the Ten Commandments, those horizontal commandments. Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, honor your father and mother. And very proudly, very boldly, and very confidently, the young man says, Teacher, I have kept all of these. And Jesus says, Well, there's still one thing that you lack. You need to take everything that you have, you need to go to sell it, give it to the poor, and follow me. And it says, at that point, the young man walked away very sad. 
And what Jesus confronted him with was the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, in response to this, he turns and he starts to teach the disciples. And he says, it is easier for a, rich man, uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And it says the disciples' reaction was two words, exceedingly astonished. They were like, what do you mean? And now we have to ask ourselves, why were the disciples so astonished, like overwhelmingly astonished with this statement that it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? It's because Jewish people, they knew the word of God. They, they knew the law. They knew Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God says, I will bless you if you are obedient and I will curse you if you are disobedient. So they had drawn this very narrow equivalent that those who had money were the holy and righteous people inside the Jewish community. So therefore, this is the best of the best. This is the cream of the crop. This is the best that Jewish faith has to offer. So therefore, they are elevated to these positions. So they would have come in into the local church, not only being given preferential treatment because of their wealth, but they would have been seen to be as a people who were really good, really moral, really upright people who were really good at keeping the law of God. But James contradicts this in their mind when he talks about it's actually the poor person who is rich in faith and not the rich person. He's like, in your context here, as we're sitting here, the, the rich people are the ones who are actually oppressing you, throwing you in jail, and using their status and their favor in this society to further oppress you, to further benefit themselves because of their money and power. And it's actually the poor man who is rich in faith. Now, if you've ever been poor, then you might understand this to a greater degree. Um, you know, my, my wife and I, when we uh, first got married, having come off the, the mission field in West Africa, and for many years throughout seminary and the early start of early part of us starting a church uh, just north of Seattle, uh, there were many years of our life that our disposable income at the end of every month was ten dollars. She got a ten dollar bill, and I got a ten dollar bill, and that is all the spending money that we had beyond meeting basic life necessities for many, many years. Now, there was a time when we were in one of our early semesters in seminary where we only had enough money for me to take classes that semester. And she's like, Daniel, you know, I really want to take, take a class this semester. Um, and I just said, well, uh, the only thing I can tell you is to pray because like, there's no other option at this point of where this money is going to come from. And so we did. The very next day, someone called and said, man, last night, God just put it on my heart that I'm just supposed to call y'all up and tell you I'm supposed to pay for a class for, for, for you to go to seminary. And we were like, "Woo, sweet, go God. And as soon as we got off the phone, Leah says, there's only one problem now. I'm like, well, what's that? There's two classes that I want to take, and I can't decide which one it's going to be. I said, well, it worked the first time. Let's see what happens again, right? 
And so we prayed. Very next day, someone calls me. God just totally put it on our heart that we are supposed to pay for you a seminary class. How do we get you the money? All right? Now, I don't know about you, but that does something for a person's faith. And that's the kind of faith a poor person has. Because each and every day of their life, they are totally dependent upon God himself to meet their basic needs in life and to give them any extras, right? And there is something incredibly sweet about that experience and those moments in your life. So if you're there, do not overlook those moments in your life. God is doing something for you that He does not do for everyone, that He does not do for everyone else. There are things that you can learn in that and God will do for you that will increase your faith the rest of your life. And I want to tell you, when, it, when you get money, because I say this, and I know almost all the students are gone, right? We're, we're 50% of what we normally are. All the students are gone. So if you're listening online, I, I hope you understand this. Many of you are going to get out of this school environment where you don't have as much money, and you are going to get more money in your career. You are going to accumulate wealth. And it's not that you can't be a wealthy follower of Jesus, but I just want to tell you moments like this are much fewer and farther between because you will have wealth, because you will have money, because you will have disposable income. And I get this and I understand this. My wife and I have businesses that God has greatly blessed. And, you know, the other day some, some, some bills came in that were very large. But I just wrote a check. Like there's no bill, just like transferred the money. And as I thought about it, you know, there's just there's just something lost on it, right? Because I mean, like I'm thankful I had the money, but it, I didn't have to go to God. I didn't have to pray to God. Like, like I didn't get to see God work. Now he's worked because he's blessed in our endeavors. But but it, it's not the same, you know? And in me, because I, I've, I've been that, I've lived that life before, there's always this tension between like, man, part of me just wants to go back to being that little widow who only had the two mites and just throw it in the thing and be like, oh, you're right, Jesus, this is all dependent upon you. What are you going to provide, right? And there's the other part of me, it's like, no, I've got all these plans for business and thing. We're going to use it to build the kingdom around the world and all the things that we're doing. And it just goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But there is this sweetness in the fact that when we have less material resources, God produces in us a richness in our faith that, that we don't always get to experience once our bank account grows and we become more successful in our careers. And so what James is pointing out to them, he's not saying the rich man is bad and he's not saying the poor man is good simply because he's rich or simply because he's poor. But he's saying to the church, listen, many of the rich people who are coming into your church, they're actually the ones who are oppressing you. You are, you are sucking up next to the one who is actually oppressing people. And we know that God hates oppression according to Scripture because he hates that the widow and orphan is oppressed. I mean, we just saw this last week, right? True religion is what? Taking care of widows and orphans. Who the, who's the oppressed? Who does most of the oppressing? The rich people. 
People who are rich and people who are in power like to hold on to their money and hold on to their power. Yes? And they will go to extreme degrees to hold on to that money and to that power. But yet James says, pay attention because you can learn something from the poor man. God is doing something in the life of the poor man that he has an understanding of faith and dependence on God that will actually be a greater blessing to you than the rich man and his wealth will ever be. So do not overlook the poor man. Do not give preferential treatment to one just because you think they can advance you in your status in life or grow your bank account. Because when you overlook the poor man, you miss out on these incredible opportunities to see faith really move in action. And so James moves there in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So this is where now we begin to make application to our own lives, right? We are called as the children of God to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the vertical commandment. But that horizontal commandment that moves toward other people we are to now love our neighbor as ourself. What that means is in the way that we meet our own needs, the way we take care of ourselves, we are to see those around us and what needs they may have. And in today, we're not talking about just financial needs, right? There are people with emotional needs. There are people with relational needs. There are people with spiritual needs. There's a whole litany, a big, massive list of needs where people are bankrupt in this life. And so the question that we now have to ask ourselves and the children of God in the organic spheres of influence that we walk into, whether it be at school, whether it be at work, whether it be in the places that we hang out on a regular basis, are we showing preferential treatment to certain people in that group simply because of what we think they can do for us? Are we not spending time with people because they are just a drain on our soul and they just take from us because they are just so needy. How are you doing? If you, if you look at your own life and you're in your own workplace, do you give special preferential treatment maybe to someone in your office who you think can help you climb the corporate ladder? Do you leave behind the one who may be struggling? What about in your social group, in your, in your peer group? Where can you look and, and see in your own life? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? What about when it comes to political views, right? Do you give preferential treatment to one because someone has the same political views that you do. I like you because we think alike. I don't like you because we don't think alike. 
So I'm going to give you better treatment than I give you. Is that partiality? Is that favoritism? Is that, is that being a respecter of persons just based on political views? I think we really have to challenge some of our assumptions in this and who are associate with and how we feel about certain people simply because of the status that we've assigned to certain people. I think this can be a great challenge to us and that if we overcome it, I think we can really step into some new areas and really become more Christ-like to the lost and dying world around us when we treat people and put people on equal footing and don't show partiality. And I want you to see the seriousness of this sin because look, look what James says in verses 10 through 13. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, again, let's get back to this thought in verse 4 where James says, when you judge, when you show partiality, have you not become judges with evil thoughts? So when he closes this section and he wraps up what he's saying, what two sins does he tie next to this entire subject? Murder and adultery. I don't think that's a mistake. I think he is really trying to show the church, really trying to show us the grievousness of this sin, to show us the disdain which God has for us when we show preferential treatment, when we show favoritism, when we show partiality toward people who are not justified in our partiality towards them. When we do this, we have become a transgressor of the law. Because he says, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And again, I'll just... I'll pick on it because I don't think it's so much rich man, poor man in our context. I think that the big issue is political, right? I mean, do we not automatically judge people on the opposite side of the political aisle without mercy? Oh, those liberals. Right? You ever said that? Oh, those conservatives. Have you ever said that? You are judging without mercy. That is, that is a judgment without mercy. You are laying something, because you know what you think. Because when you use that title, right? When you say, oh, those people. You've got a whole list of all those things about all those people. And you just categorize them in there. You just characterize them. Have you ever had a conversation with that individual? Do you know why they believe what they believe? Have you ever sat down with them face to face and just say, tell me why you think what you think? 
You know, th- th- this is not new, new to us. We, the, you know, the enemy, Satan wants to divide human beings into categories because it, it, it makes it easier to hate, right? When you get removed from people, it, it, it's really easier to hate somebody when you view them as a label and not as a human being. And, and, this, is, and this is not just from a, a political sense, right? Like my children right now in their church history and our homeschool uh, they're reading a book called Light Force by Brother Andrew. Some of you may know the book God Smuggler. I'll just tell you, if you ever want your faith to just be blown, go read God Smuggler. There's like well over 10 million copies in print. It's amazing. But after he does all this work behind the communist wall, he goes to the Middle East. And there was a there, there was a man that my kids were studying this week out of his life, and he just talks about, you know, there's, there, there's these ways that, that, that we just get divided. And the same thing that we're seeing now and think are these big revelations are something that people have known that this man pointed out 50 or 60 years ago. And he was talking about the difference between Palestinians and and Jews. And he's like, but yet when we all live in the same community together and have conversations, all all that hatred dies when we have conversations. So I'm not saying that you should agree with the person because, you know, we can both be wrong, but we can't both be right. And so there are some things where you're just, you may be right. You may be right. But you being right doesn't give you a right to judge someone before you've ever had a conversation with someone and know what someone actually thinks. We don't, we don't give judgments based off labels. We make judgments once we have conversation and we actually know what someone thinks and believes because we've interacted with them and but we've judged them not according to our political views, but according to the Word of God. Because that's the difference. Because I got just as many complaints on both sides of the political aisle that are, that are not aligned with the Word of God. And if you think either political party in this country or any political party in this country or anywhere around the world has full alignment with the Word of God, we can have a discussion. Because uh, I can show you real fast, real quick, no one's there. But where is it for you? And I'm not trying to pick on politics. I'm really not that much of a political person in the long run. Um, I'm an independent, so they don't, they, don't, they, don't, they, don't, they don't let me vote in any primary around here. So, uh, but where, where are you? I mean, where do you see favoritism and impartiality, you being partial in your life, Right? Where do you see it in your workplace? Where, where do you see it in school? What, where is it that you exhibit judgment before you exhibit mercy? And that's what James says, and that's where we'll, we'll, we'll close here, is that <clears throat> mercy triumphs over judgment. I mean, isn't this the gospel? Right? I mean, we all deserve judgment, right? The, the judge has rendered his judgment. We all deserve death. We all deserve punishment. We all etern- deserve eternal separation from God. But rather than just doing that, because that's what we deserve, and it may be what people might deserve in your context and setting, Jesus says, that's not what you're going to get from me the children of God.
I'm going to give to you mercy. So the question is, will we walk in that mercy and show mercy toward people that we don't like, that we don't agree with? Is there a place that you can walk into and you can be merciful towards someone who maybe yesterday you hated because of their view or because of their position, because of their status in life? When you walk out this truth in the next week, in the next month, in the next year, can you find in yourself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, this new heart and this new life that, that God has taken out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh to walk and let mercy lead the conversation before judgment is ever cast? This is an incredible challenge to us. I have, for two weeks, I've been like, God, I do not want to preach this message because I can preach this message until Jesus comes back and I don't know how I'm going to do much better than this. Like, this is, a, this is hard, God. It is hard not to judge people without knowing them. It, it is hard not to just apply labels to people and just go, Psh, I want nothing to do with them. But yet the cross compels us to do so. The cross challenges us to put mercy before judgment. And so I pray that we take serious this call of James, realizing what, what a high standard and how hard this is, but also what a grievous offense it is when we judge before we put forth mercy.